Test, 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 test. Testing, one, two, three, testing, one, two, three. Test, one, two, three, test, one, two, three, test, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three, testing, one, two, three. Is it good? Yeah? Okay. And turn over to Acts 14. Acts 14. Acts chapter 14. We have been examining the first missionary slash church planting slash gospel preaching journey of the Apostle Paul. This has taken some time, hasn't it? If you've been with us for any number of weeks. Um, and it's been uh, a lot of work, I'd say. Uh, for whatever reason, I you know, thought, how much time have we put into this? And how many sermons have we had just on this section? Not on Acts as a whole, because we've been in that for nearly two years. Uh, so I don't even want to try to attempt to figure that out. But just in this like little mini-series thing, we've been studying this first missionary journey. We've been calling it the mission of Paul in Cyprus, Galatia, and Pamphylia. Um, and we've been, that's what we've been focusing on. And, and uh, I found that that whole time that they were away on that first missionary journey, you know, you read the scriptures and you think, wow, they must have done this in a couple of weeks or whatever. It was like two years. They were gone for two years doing this thing. So that's one thing I thought was interesting. Um, that first missionary planting journey covers two full chapters in the book of Acts. 13 verse 1 all the way up to 1428, which is where we'll be today. So that's interesting. Two full chapters devoted to that. Uh, in this particular series, we have had, this will be our 18th part today, just on the mini-series. And so we've had 18, this will be the 18th sermon on that first missionary journey. 18 sermons equals roughly 16 and a half hours of preaching at 55 minutes each. That's basically been the average. Now here's what blew my mind, because I'm always wondering... How much time do I actually, you know, not toot my own horn or anything, how much time do I actually spend, you know, studying the Word and, and examining the Scriptures and more or less just trying to figure out exactly what God means? Anybody with me on that? It's like, you know, you just look at a text and you study it and you're like, what is your point here, Lord, right? 252 study hours have gone into the 18 parts. I was like, okay, I'm either the most inefficient, you know, <laughs> Or, or, you know, that's a good thing. And then at the end of it all, I thought, okay, I've got about 250, 260 hours of studying this thing. I still don't know Jack. Right? I mean, you can just spend an eternity studying the Word of God. It's so vast. It's like a diamond, all these edges and everything. So those are some, some cool stats. That's where we've been for weeks upon weeks and putting hours and hours into this particular section. And all the glory goes to God. Right? It's all to Him. Now, we began this mini-series. When I say mini-series, I'm reflecting upon and I'm referencing the mission of Paul in Cyprus, Galatia, and Pamphylia. We began this mini-series with Paul and Barnabas being sent out by, it said in the text, the Holy Spirit from Syrian Antioch. That's where they were. That was kind of the home base. They were sent out from that particular place to preach the gospel and plant churches in the Roman provinces of Cyprus, Galatia, and Pamphylia. That was kind of our starting point. And just kind of getting you up to speed here because we're going to close out this thing today. But after sailing to the island of Cyprus, they preached uh, the gospel all over the island in all the synagogues there. And, and then they actually preached the gospel before the governor, Sergius Paulus, right? At the capital city of Paphos. And Sergius Paulus gave his heart and life to the Lord, which was amazing. After 
from Paphos, they actually sailed north to uh, Pamphylia and landed there and, and then traveled to Perga, but they didn't stay there in Perga for more than a few moments. From Perga, they traveled north to Pisidian Antioch, another type of Antioch, uh, to the west. And that Antioch is in Galatia where they preached and planted a church, maybe multiple churches, we don't know, but we know they planted a church there. From Pisidian Antioch, they traveled southeast to three other Galatian towns. You remember what they were called? Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Remember those? Where they also preached the gospel and planted churches. From Derbe, they circled back and returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch, where they did what? We studied this a couple of weeks ago. They strengthened and encouraged the new believers in these new churches. And that's pretty much where we left off two Sundays ago. That's where we left off in the narrative. This morning, we will wrap up Paul's first missionary church planting journey with part 18. We will look at the last cities he and Barnabas ministered to, preached the gospel to, in Pamphylia, and how they returned to their home base in Syrian Antioch. Our text will be Acts chapter 14, verses 24 to 28. And I think it's befitting to pray before we do an exposition. And Father, we want to devote this time to you, to knowing you, to hearing from you, and, and that's exactly what we're doing, Lord. We pray that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit, that you would fill this place with the Holy Spirit, that he may discern and translate your truth to us. Without him, we have no understanding. And God, I believe you're going to say some very important things today to these folks. You have been to me throughout the week. Talk about the word. Talk about the gospel. Talk about Christ. Very important things, Lord. Talking about the gospel. Most important message to this world. The gospel is the mission and message of the church. No other message. The gospel. Make it clear today, Father. Open our hearts, minds, and eyes to you. May we not be dull of hearing. If our hearts are calloused and seared, give us a new heart. We lift up this message to you, Lord, and depend on you. We humble ourselves, speak to us, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and read the text real quick. I'll fire through it, then we'll come back and go through it line by line. 24 to 28, 14. Chapter 14, 24 to 28, then they passed, speaking of Paul and Barnabas, through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. It doesn't look like it'd be pronounced that way, does it? Right? Well, if you look it up in the, I've got a little, you know, a little uh, pronunciation, uh, little key on my Bible study program, and it always does the words in the opposite way that I would say them. And so it's like, where's the foo there? Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, that's like probably not the right way to say it, but I'm doing it. Perga, they went down to Atalia, Atalia, Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, Gentiles being non-Jews. People like us. And then it says, and they remained no little time with the disciples. 
All right, let's backtrack a little bit and take a look at verse 24. Are you ready? If you're ready, you can say, I'm ready. All right, good. Let's take a look at 24 together. We're just going to keep moving through this text. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, let's just stop right there, cut it off right there. Let's talk about Perga for a moment. What is Perga? Where is this place? What's it about? Perga was the capital of the province of Pamphylia. So this was a major city. Uh, you think of capital cities in states, they're pretty major cities. Unless, of course, it's like Montana and there's eight people that live there. It's beautiful. Uh, but this was a major city because it was the capital city of this Roman province, Pamphylia. It's a beautiful, beautiful area between the Taurus Mountains and the Mediterranean Seas. It's very, very, very striking, very beautiful place. It is between the provinces of Lycia and Cilicia. Perga was situated about 11 miles or so. There's, you know, some ruins there today. But 11 miles northeast of the Mediterranean port of Italia. So Perga was not a port city, as so many of the cities were that they visited. It was uh, off uh, shore, if you will, to some degree. And there was a purpose for having this major city, this, you know, um, centralized location, this capital city off of the coast, off of the beach, if you will. Um, this was a defensive measure against pirate bands and, and you know, such that would come in off of the sea and just raid these, you know, uh, seaside cities and all that. So they put this thing 13 miles inland to prevent that. Beautiful place, capital city, very large inland to, to some degree. Now when Paul and Barnabas originally sailed from Cyprus, they landed at Pamphylia and went straight to Perga. So they probably came in at Italia and then they went right up to Perga is what it says. We studied that a little while ago. At that time, the first time they came through Perga, they had Barnabas's nephew with them. You remember that? What's his name? Do you remember? John Mark? Okay, John Mark or Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, the scribe of Simon Peter, if you will. They had this guy with them, but when they got to Perga, John Mark, you remember, immediately abandoned them and then returned back to Jerusalem. It's like they got to Italia and made that 13-mile trek into Perga, and as soon as they got there, John's like, I'm out. You know, he just didn't want to go any further, and he turned around and went back to his mama or whoever in Jerusalem. He didn't go back to Syrian Antioch. He went all the way back to Jerusalem. And then after he left, they decided to leave Perga and travel north to Pisidian Antioch. Now, why didn't Paul and Barnabas remain in Perga the first time around? They were already there. Why didn't they just set up? camp and start proclaiming the gospel, try to find those Jewish synagogues, go to the Agora if they had one. Soon as John Mark left, they bounced. Why didn't they remain? I mentioned some of the possibilities months back. It's been suggested that Paul may have fallen ill with malaria, carried by mosquitoes from the many coastal marshes in the surrounding countryside, necessitating a change in plans. 
Paul mentions illness as the reason he first preached to the Galatians. And keep in mind that Pisidian Antioch is a Galatian city. And that's where they really first started proclaiming the gospel in this whole region. But he actually mentioned the reason why he actually came and preached to the Galatians in the first place was because of illness. In Galatians 4.13-14 to 14, he wrote, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel at you first. And through my condition, uh, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Jesus Christ. So man, when he showed up at Pisidian Antioch, he was still pretty sick. He probably preached from a bed. Hey, gather around. So it kind of looks like maybe an illness prevented him from preaching, prevented them from doing ministry in Perga when they first visited there. He got there and he was probably deathly ill and they got out of there to recuperate Paul needed to get to a higher um, drier altitude and climate like that of Pisidian Antioch in Galatia which was situated and situated on the edge of the 3,000 foot high Anatolian plateau so if you had this malaria or a sickness like that higher altitude would do you well stay down in the humid area by the ocean would, would just continue to jack you up. And so it could be that uh, maybe he was sick and that's why they just skirted right out of, of Perga. Uh, I suspect that John Mark's departure may have had something to do with them leaving Perga the first time around. I've mentioned that. Paul was highly displeased with John Mark for doing this. Very frustrated with him for doing this. So much so that when Barnabas tried to bring John Mark along on the second missionary church planning journey, Paul sharply disagreed, uh, disagreed with him. And then what happened? That disagreement led to a parting. Barnabas went off and did ministry somewhere else, and Paul went off and did it somewhere else. John Mark may have frustrated their plans, causing them to move on for the time being to some degree. You must know that believers have the ability to frustrate other believers and frustrate ministry through sin and self-centeredness or whatever. I don't know how many times I became the monkey wrench in Countryman's plan over at Big Valley. Hey, what are we going to do? You know, oh my gosh, we got to rethink this thing. Phil doesn't get it. You know, or maybe you've done that. You know, you're, you're plugged into a ministry and, you, and you, you do something goofy, you sin, you mess up and it's like ah we have this propensity to, to do this man to frustrate the ministry and to frustrate ministry plans and direction and things like that through our own sin through our own self-centeredness through our own selfishness and what have you you think in terms of a pastor when a pastor sins and disqualifies himself and there are some sins that a pastor can commit and get himself involved in that'll take him right out of the ministry when he does such a thing and disqualifies himself from ministry it has a massive effect on the church he serves the elders have to if they have elders hopefully they do the elders have to scramble and put together a plan and and ministries have to adjust and sometimes change course sometimes the entire church has to change direction because this guy, you know, was leading them in a particular direction and then he screws up and sins and disqualifies himself. Now the church goes, oh, we've got to figure this thing out. 
when a servant leader flakes out and doesn't show up to serve, what happens to the others who are serving there with him or her? Well, they have to take up the slack and sometimes even change the whole structure for the morning. You know, if you had Susie who was coming to teach the children that morning and then just decides to kick back and watch, you know, on her TiVo days of our lives, and, you know, all of a sudden, those who serve alongside her, oh, I've got, I guess I have to teach the lesson this morning. You know, everything has to change because of somebody's laziness or complacency, someone's sin. Bottom line is what we do or don't do affects others. The church is a living, breathing organism. It is a body of believers. And when its members sin and flake out and do these things, it has an effect on the whole body. Or at least it has an effect on the local bodies, right? Wherever it takes place. The decisions that I make, friends, affect my wife, affect my children, affect my family, my, 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 my close family under my own roof and my extended family. It affects my decisions affect my friends, my decisions affect co-workers because I, I work jobs too and here. And my decisions affect you as a pastor of this church. The decisions you make, the decisions I make have an effect on others and on your church family. That's just the bottom line, man. John Mark's abandonment eventually led to a rift. His sin, leaving was a sin. John Mark's abandonment eventually led to a rift between two of the greatest church-planting missionaries the world has ever seen. Because of that guy, more than likely. Obviously, they had a disagreement over him. What he did had rattled Paul so deeply. We can't rely on him, Barnabas. He left us in the midst of it. I know you don't want to hear this, but he's a coward. And God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but a boldness. You think about John Mark's decision to leave and the rift that created between two of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. What we do has an effect on others. Don't ever take sin lightly. Don't take it lightly. Don't think that your sin only affects you. Huge mistake. Men today believe that porn only affects the viewer. This is just an example. Porn destroys the viewer. Porn destroys marriages. Porn destroys families, relationships. And it exploits and destroys those who engage in it for profit. Porn fuels prostitution. Porn fuels and supports sex trafficking, sex trades throughout the entire world. Porn in the U.S. is actually linked to the sex trades and sex trafficking throughout the world. All this stuff is tied together when it comes to porn. An internet porn subscription on a Modesto computer is more than likely helping to keep some poor daddy's teenage daughter in the sex trades in India. It's all tied together. Oh, it's just me. 
I'm just looking at this. It's my little gratification. I'm just, you know, it's my, no, 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 men. And there's some ladies that are into it. Porn affects many. The Bible actually teaches that sin is pervasive and far-reaching. Not just personal. Genesis 20 verse 5 speaks of the sin of idolatry being passed from fathers to sons and from generation to generation and so on and so forth. Sin is pervasive. It affects everyone. It's even passed from generation to generation. What we do affects others, period. Never take sin lightly. It is devastating, it destroys, and the wages of it is death. But remember that Christ has conquered sin. Remember that Christ has conquered death, sin, and death through his finished work. Sin no longer has mastery over those who are in Christ Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit and resurrection power to help us battle and overcome sin. And we have the church for support. Amen. Whether it was John Mark's sin, abandoning them, or sickness that caused Paul and Barnabas to leave Perga during the early days of their mission, we don't know for sure. But one thing's for certain. According to verse 25... They came back. They came back. And what did they do when they came back? When they went back to Perga? The text says they spoke the word. What word did they speak? Word as in scripture? If so, where from the scriptures did they speak? Did they come into Perga and host a marriage conference? Did they come into Perga and hold an end times conference? An eschatology conference? What word did they speak? They spoke the word of John 1.1 and John 1.14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul and Barnabas spoke the same word as the Apostle John wrote about here. And an interesting thing is, word there in John 1, 1, and John 1.14 is logos in Greek, L-O-G-O-S, logos. You ever done a study on John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14 or the chapter of John 1 which we just heard read? What is the word there in that text? Have you ever noticed how it's capitalized? The word is a reference to someone, a person, a logos. Christ, the word they preached is logos, which means in that particular text, 
Christ. Who is the word? Who is the logos of these verses? Logos. The logos is Christ. Christ is the word. Paul and Barnabas spoke Christ who is the word. And interesting too, logos is also used in the New Testament as a reference to the gospel. To the gospel, which is the good news about what Christ has done through his death, burial, and resurrection for sinners like you and I. Christ has won a decisive victory over sin, Satan, death, and hell through his work, through his person and work. Through Christ we can be saved from our sin and its penalty, delivered from the devil and his control, and be brought into a right standing with God forever. Without Christ... We are lost. Without Christ, we are damned. Without Christ, we are cursed. Without Christ, we are condemned. Without Christ, we are on the broad road to destruction. Without Christ, we will be made to pay for our sin debt, for our rebellion against Creator God, our Creator God for all eternity in hell, where our thirst will never be quenched, where our worm will never die. And I don't even want to, that's frightening to think, a gnawing worm. And where the gnashing of teeth will never be silence. Friends, Jesus Christ is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Christ alone can save and deliver you. Christ alone can make you a new creation, a new person. Christ alone can give you a new identity as a child of God. Christ alone can give you security, real security for your life. Christ alone can give you purpose for your life. To serve him is the greatest thing. Christ alone can give you a hope and a future unlike anything you've ever seen. Now, how might one receive Christ and his blessings? What was required of the people of Perga nearly 2,000 years ago? They came into that city and preached the Logos, the Word. They preached Christ. They preached the Gospel. What was required of all these people that would have listened to them? What's required of you to receive Christ and these blessings? Jesus said in Mark 1.15, very simply, repent and believe in the Gospel. Repent means to turn from your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance, your hope in yourself to gain yourself. Heaven, you've got to know that you cannot save yourself. You've got to know that your good deeds are but filthy rags. You've got to know that any good work done apart from faith in Jesus Christ is a stench before the Holy One. To repent means to recognize that you cannot save yourself and that you must turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. You must believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus Christ took your sins upon his body at the cross and that he paid for your sin debt through his own blood and death. Believe that he was buried in a grave to experience, to absorb death for you. Believe that he rose three days later to secure for you eternal life and the future glorious resurrection body. If a person repents and believes in the gospel, the Bible says they will be saved. 
That is God's promise according to Scripture. And God is perfect, and God is unchanging, and God never lies, and God never deceives. You can count on Him. God gives us the Holy Spirit. Those who repent and believe, even at the moment before that, He gives the Holy Spirit who proves His biblical promises and convinces us that they are true. I and others in this room can testify to you about the reality and validity of God's word and, and, and the reality and validity of God's promises all day long until the cows come home. But none of us has the power or ability to convince and prove them to you in a saving way. Only God can do those things. Why? Because the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. God the Holy Spirit is the one who testifies of Christ and makes him known. When a person repents and believes in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is already in them doing his miraculous work. He is there opening their eyes and opening their minds and opening their hearts to the truth about their sin and about their desperate need of Christ. He is there regenerating and illuminating them. He comes and what does he do? He convicts, he convinces, and he converts them. He grants them repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25, and gives them the gift of faith, Ephesians 2.8. According to John 6.63, the Holy Spirit gives eternal life. It comes through him. And after saving a person, he doesn't leave that person. A couple of things he does. He dwells in us. And I've got a bunch of verses listed here. I'll put this transcript up on the website. I don't have time to go through all the verses. These are things that he does. He dwells in us. A ton of verses behind that. He becomes our guarantee and deposit of future resurrection. He sets us apart. He bears witness in us that we are children of God. You ever wonder why you're children of God, child of God? You wonder, am I a child of God? The Holy Spirit testifies of that on the inside of you. He leads us. He enables us to obey the truth. He teaches us. He reveals the deep things of God to us. He sanctifies us. He makes us like Jesus. These are the things that he does. When a person becomes his abode, God has set his affection on this person and saves this person. The Spirit comes, converts, and stays and brings all of these things. And there's way more. The Holy Spirit's ministry is so broad and amazing. So salvation is in, salvation in Jesus Christ comes through the inward work of the Holy Spirit in the form of repentance and faith. The inward work then begins to show itself on the outside. True believers will exhibit the following things. True believers will confess with their tongues that Jesus is Lord. They will read and study the word. They love the word. They obey the Lord's commands. They pray. They, they bear the fruits of the Spirit. Love, peace, these things. They join the local church and engage in the ministry of the gospel. 
They attend the assembly regularly. They love to come to church. Yeah, they miss some here and there. Sometimes they get sick. Sometimes they have a vacation. Sometimes there's a little dip where they're depressed. They don't come. That's normal stuff. But man, they come to the assembly. They commit themselves to being in the house of the Lord where the people of God are to hear from Christ. They joyfully give of their time, talent, and treasure to the cause of Christ. They're generous people. Think of Zacchaeus. They gossip and preach the gospel in their communities. Just sometimes you're just chattering about Jesus. That's gossiping. You're just talking about him. They love and care for other believers. They love their brothers and sisters. They love their neighbors. How? By witnessing to them. By showing hospitality, kindness, and generosity. They forgive others. Huge. They reconcile with others. Man, they work it out. They confess their sins to others. Remember, these are outward signs. They're a parent. They raise and train their child, their children, to know, love, and cherish the Lord above themselves, above the children themselves, above others, and above all things. True believers will exhibit these things at some level. Now keep in mind that the Christian faith is marked by ebbs, flows, ups, downs, and ins and outs. These things will fluctuate. This is normal. But if a person claims to be a Christian and rarely, if ever, reads the Bible, rarely forgives, you know, rarely attends church, rarely confesses sin, rarely prays, rarely shares the love of Christ with others and so on and so forth something is wrong something is missing and that's something and we just got it we've just got to come to terms with this because you know people like this what's missing true saving faith oh I don't like to say that because I can't figure out if they are or aren't if they don't if they rarely if ever have any of these markings you can pretty much count on them not really truly understanding the gospel They rarely engage any of these things. Something is, is desperately wrong, and that something is true saving faith is not there. And think in terms of what Christ makes us. He makes us a new creation. And new creations, as new creations, new creations long for truth. They long for righteousness. They long for holiness. As new creations, we long for the things of Christ and we want to honor and obey and glorify God, glorify Christ in all that we do as new creations. We humbly submit to God's sovereign lordship and rule. He literally becomes our loving Kyrios master and we become his humble doulos, slaves. That's what we become. And so if, if, if I'm a Christian and, and this, this stuff isn't present, you're not a Christian. You need to become one through repentance and faith. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 to examine themselves to see whether they were in the faith. This is a, a, a good thing for us to do. I do it regularly. Well... Ask yourself, do I have the Holy Spirit in me? Is the presence of the Spirit there in me? 
Have I repented? Have I really repented and turned from my self-reliance? Have I repented of my self-reliance and put my faith in Jesus Christ alone? Have I done that? When did I do that? Am I exhibiting the outward signs of salvation? Are the fruits of the Spirit present? Am I a forgiver? Am I a reconciler? Do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I come to church regularly? Do I do these things? Wait a minute. Self-evaluation is wonderful. God, God warns us or reminds us in love to do this regularly in Scripture. It shows up periodically. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Don't doubt in your salvation. Just check your life. Analyze your life. Do you have a real, living, breathing, transformational relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you love God and others? Is holiness important? Is righteousness important to you? Is truth important to you? After speaking the word in Perga, what did Paul and Barnabas do next? This is what they did. They came into Perga and they proclaimed fantastic amazing gospel Christ people of Perga Christ is the savior of the world these are the things that he brings you need him what did they do after <clears throat> look at 25b and 26 they went down to Atalia or Atalia and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled they went down to Atalia, Atalia was a port city in the province of Pamphylia, nine miles, 13 miles or so, whatever, southwest of Perga. But they didn't stay there to preach the gospel. It doesn't show that in the text at all. Wherever they preached, it says they would stay there and preach the word or speak the word or something of that nature. Here they did not do that. Instead, they looked for a boat that could take them back to where they had been originally sent from two years earlier, Syrian Antioch. They found a boat. And then set sail, it says in the text. They sailed along the Mediterranean Sea until they reached Seleucia. From Seleucia, they sailed up the Orontes River to Syrian Antioch and then made port. What happened next? Look at verse 27. Some of this stuff moves pretty fast because it's just them traveling from point A to point B. 27, and... When they had arrived, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. I love this. After arriving at the church where they had been sent, they brought everyone together. They gathered all the believers. They gathered the other, gathered the other elders and leaders that had sent them originally. They hadn't seen these brothers and sisters in Christ in two years. The church had probably grown while they were gone and there were probably new believers there who had never met Paul and Barnabas they gathered all these folks together the place had to be filled with love and and tears of joy and excitement and anticipation I mean this church was the sending church of these missionaries they came back to give a report how exciting would that have been well they're back they made it they're alive Remember that before Paul and Barnabas left, they spent a year at this church teaching these people. What am I telling you? This was a close group. They loved each other. They did life together. And once they had them all together, they began to tell them 
about their journey. Hey, man, we went to Cyprus and preached the gospel in the synagogues and in Paphos where the governor got saved. Unbelievable. We could not believe it. There was a weird magician there, too. He didn't get saved. He got blinded. We went to Perga, but John Mark left us, and, and I got really sick, man. Has anyone seen John Mark? Does anyone know if he's okay? We preached the gospel in Pisidian Antioch and planted a church there, but the Jews ran us off. We preached the gospel and planted churches in Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. The Lycaonians tried to worship us as gods. They called Barnabas Zeus and me Hermes. I don't know why they thought he was better than me. I almost got killed in Lystra. They tried to stone me to death, dragged me out of, out of the city gates and started pelting me with rocks. After that, we you know, circled back and we went down to Derby. Then we circled back and encouraged the churches that we had already planted. Went back to Iconium and Pisidian Antioch and these places. And on our way home, we preached Christ in Perga. And then we hopped on a boat in Italia. Altogether, we preached Christ in cities throughout Cyprus, Galatia, and Pamphylia. People got saved. Churches got planted. Mission accomplished. If there were ever an opportunity to boast about one's ability to preach well, and to win people to Christ, this was it. If there were ever an opportunity to, to boast about one's leadership skills and, and, and resolve and courage, this was it. Paul and Barnabas had these people captivated by their story. This is what we went through. What an opportunity for self-exaltation. We see that in the church today. I'm a soul winner. You ain't Jack. The Holy Spirit wins souls. You don't win anything. How dare men take these, the glories of God and apply them to themselves. I watch myself in that. I have to beat myself into submission to the will of God because even I am tempted. Ooh, look. Look at all these people here today. They've come to hear me preach. Why didn't they come back the next week? <laughs> it happens all the time. Obviously, it wasn't because I preached. It happens. But notice how Paul and Barnabas didn't do that. No grandstanding here. Notice how they did not try to take any credit or glory for their success, for the success they experienced. Not at all here. They told the church what? About what God had done with them and about how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. You see it there? Paul and Barnabas wanted God to receive what belonged to him. And what is that, friends? All the glory, all the praise, all the honor, all the fame belongs to him. Right there. Oh, we did this, this, and that. No. He opened the door of faith. I didn't open anything. I was trying to shut doors the whole time I was there. They wanted God to receive all the glory and praise and honor and fame for this mission. It was God's mission. The Holy Spirit had sent them out. The Holy Spirit had accomplished these things. He was the one that proclaimed the gospel through them. He was the one that converted people and made them new creations. He was the one that planted churches. It's not men that do these things. It's God. Lastly, look at verse 28. 
and they remained no little time with the disciples. I love that. Paul and Barnabas remained in Syrian Antioch for a while. They had earned a respite, but I doubt they kicked their feet up for long, if at all. Paul strove more than anyone else, including the other apostles. His work ethic and service ethic was unmatched. His desire to make Christ known consumed him. Even while in prison later on, he worked feverishly. He evangelized his jailers and he wrote letters to the churches. You think he took a break? Paul and Barnabas probably returned to teaching as they had done before they left. Probably went right back into a mode of serving. Maybe they took a breather. It's understandable. Sometimes we need to take a break or God will make us lie down in green pastures if we won't do it ourselves. But I don't think their respite lasted long. They re-engaged, started thinking about another journey. They started thinking about other things. And as we'll learn in chapter 15, there was some stuff that hit the church hard. First big heresy. And I think they went right back to teaching. I think they went right back to strengthening and encouraging, doing the things they had done throughout their missionary journey. With that being said, we have reached the end of our text. Simple text. We have reached the end of our mini-series. Next week, Lord willing, we will begin at Acts 15. I hope you will enjoy us. I do have enjoy us. I hope you will enjoy us. I hope you will join us and enjoy. I don't know. And I do have some closing thoughts for you. Don't check out yet. And we celebrate communion every week. This morning, before we take the elements, let's spend some time evaluating, examining ourselves. As I mentioned earlier, have you repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ? You trusting in yourself and your own good deeds? You think that somehow the good that you're doing is going to earn you some right with God? Somehow the scale is going to be brought out, you know, in heaven when you breathe your last breath and you'll be before God Almighty and all his raging glory and majesty just mind-blowing. You're forced to your knees. All right, Simon Peter, get out the scale. Let's see where Jimmy's at. Good deeds. Boom. Hey, pretty good. Bad deeds. Boom. Oh, whoa. Can't let you in, pal. You know, that is the American ideal of salvation. That is what people here believe. I'm a good person. I'm a good person, and my good deeds are going to save me. If there is a heaven... If there is a God, and I suspect there is because I've been to Half Dome, it's pretty insane. He's going to let me in because I've done a lot of good things. In fact, I know my good things have outweighed my bad things. That's American evangelicalism. That's American religion. That is the default belief of the world. Have you repented of that belief and put your faith in Jesus Christ.
If you haven't, God commands that you do so now. Well, just ponder it and think about it and get back to us. Must, be, must we be reminded of the futility of life and how it's unpredictable? Must I bring up Paul Walker to you? Test drive a nice car, burn to death. If you haven't repented and turned from your self-sufficiency and put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done, God commands that you do it at this very moment. Do not hesitate. Do not put it off. Life is unpredictable. 6,500 people die in the U.S. every day. And as I said a little over a week ago, famous movie star killed right after a charity event or right in between. It happens over and over and over. God may call you to account at any moment as he did Paul Walker. Are you prepared to stand before the righteous and holy one? Are you? You repent and believe the gospel, you will be prepared. If you are already a Christian, are any of the outward signs I mentioned earlier missing from your life? Do you obey the commands of Christ? Do you love your neighbors? Do you confess your sins? Do you pray do you give of your time, talent, and treasure to the cause of Christ? Do you forgive others? Do you bear the fruits of the Spirit? And so on and so forth. Is that who you are? Before you take the elements, child of God, you need to acknowledge your deficiencies, anything that's deficient, what is lacking in my faith. Confess what is lacking in these deficiencies before God and realign yourself with the will of God. God will help you. He will. What's missing, friend? Man, I've got that relationship that's been going on for a while and I just cannot forgive that person. Unforgiveness is the most unchristian thing you can possibly do because you have been forgiven much. I often say if I were God there'd be so many people not forgiven because I tend to do that. I tend to hold things. Again. Thank God I'm not God. Who do you need to forgive? What fruits aren't bubbling up and, and being born in your life? Are you generous? Do you love your brothers and sisters? Do you love your neighbors? Do you love the truth for these students right here? When's the last time you opened your Bible on your own and read it? Well, I'm in a relationship with Jesus, but I don't really care to talk to him very much or to hear from him. I don't talk to him in prayer. I don't listen to him in the word. Well, one of these days, you young men are going to get married. If you try pulling that with your wife, you'll be getting divorced. Just take half your stuff. 
You can't have a relationship with someone and pay no attention to them and not listen to them and not love them back. You can't. Ain't happening. I don't get in the word very much. Say to yourself, why? Why do I not want to read the scriptures? It could very well be that you have never repented and never trusted in the gospel. It could be that you have unconfessed sin. Who knows? This is why self-evaluation is so good. What is lacking? Also, before communion, remember what the juice and the blood represent. What do these elements represent? They represent the finished work of Jesus Christ. Completion. Jesus Christ accomplished salvation for us. We cannot add anything to it. It's all in Him. His blood, His broken body. It's all Him. And when we leave this place, we need to know that we cannot earn our way with God because Christ earned our way for us. Someone once said we are not saved by works in any means of the term. And I say we are saved by works Christ's works, not your own. Those elements represent his blood and his broken body, representing new covenant, our salvation, and completion of his work. We come to his table and we celebrate his finished work. Blood doesn't represent, the juice doesn't represent your blood. And your broken body, you didn't hang on a cross, he did it for you. Do you have any idea how many people get the gospel wrong like this in churches? Do they think they have to earn their way? Oh, if I want to have more favor, i got to do more things. If I want to be saved, i got to do more things. It's all heresy, family. It's all in Christ. He did it all. It's him. He said on the cross what? Last words, basically. It is what? Finished. It's almost done. Now Phil needs to take up the ball and do his part. If he'd have said that, oh my gosh. Millions upon millions would be without hope. It's him. We are saved by works. Christ works not our own. Take those elements. Remember what he did. He gave his life as a ransom for you. It's all in him. Enjoy this time at the Lord's Supper table. Reflect on what we've talked about. Reflect on your life. Examine yourself. Confess your sin. And take these things with, with all joy and remembrance of what he did. And if you have yet to come to know Jesus Christ in a saving way, please do not take the elements. Just sit back. Relax. We're glad you're here. But this sacrament is for the saints. Let me pray.
Father, uh, we are so thankful for the gospel, for the word, for the logos, for Christ. He lived a perfect life in obedience to you, obeying the law perfectly. I can never do that. I do pretty good on Tuesday, but by Wednesday it's all shattered. He lived it perfectly and earned for us the righteousness that is necessary to see the kingdom of God. And we receive Jesus Christ and his righteousness by faith. And he died on a cross, Father, to bear my sin debt and the sin debt of many. He was buried in a tomb, absorbing death for me that I will live forever he rose, which symbolized and authenticated his message that he was divine, that all that he said was true, that he is trustworthy, and he rose conquering sin and death. We will rise like him, those who are in Christ in the future. How glorious this gospel is to sinners like me, to sinners like these people. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone needs Christ. We thank you for this time of communion where we can examine ourselves, confess our sin. We can align ourselves with your will through the power of the Holy Spirit, the power and might of your word, and that we can take these elements in all joy remembering what Christ has done for us. What a glorious thing the Lord's Supper is. You gave it to us as a gift, as a means of grace to love us by it and through it. It should be taken off. Thank you, Christ. You are so, so good. And we pray these things in your holy name, the matchless name of Jesus Christ, which is the name of above all names there is no higher name than your name christ we pray it in your holy name amen elements are on the sides friends enjoy your time with jesus